Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good morning, Jundo. How are you today? I ever tell you I love you, Kirk? It is true. Oh, I do love you. That's so sweet. A lot of folks in this world, uh, I uh, I wish uh, I could, I should say to them, I love them. And uh, folks at Tree Leaf, uh, people, unfortunately, in my family, I didn't say it enough. Love, that's our theme today. Love doesn't sound like a very Zen thing. We always think of Zen as so sterile, so ascetic. And you don't think of love in the Zen sense. You don't think of Zen monks walking around handing bouquets of flowers to other Zen monks, that kind of thing. No, they, they didn't do that. But I, I, I tell you that uh, there was a, a certain love amongst monks. I'm just uh, listening to a podcast about the uh, Mother Teresa's nuns, and they were told not to feel anything for the other nun mm. in the convent, that it was a kind of attachment. And yet, they felt great love for each other. That was their family. And I think it was very much uh, the same case for the the monks in uh, Dogen's monastery or any monastery. And sometimes, you know, actually, it, people don't talk about this. It became a kind of physical love. It became truly uh, romantic relationships. But I'm not talking about that. I'm, what is the Greek expression? Agrippa? Love of someone's humanity? Yeah. Well, love has so many meanings. You have romantic love. You have love for your family. You have... I love the green tea that I've just made to accompany me in this podcast. You, you love your favorite band. You love a TV series. And, and all of these are different types of love. Well, people in Buddhism uh, speak about attachment as a bad thing. And attachment is a clinging, excessive kind of But if you truly appreciate something, cherish something, treasure something, that's a different thing. So. Zen master treasure. Zen masters treasured, for example, tea, ceremony, the flowers. They 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 love the Buddha, but it's it's a a kind of freeing love. It's not the it's not a strangling love, and that, that's very important. Well, love can be attachment, but love can also be mutual. And I'm just thinking of love between people can be a mutual feeling of love that's not necessarily attachment. In some cases. People may be in love and one person may be dependent on another, and that could be seen as attachment. But in others, it, it's just, it's the normal way of being for humans, isn't it? Love is the way we should live. The monks in the monastery were a family. And certainly if you were with people in any family, there were probably you know people you didn't get on with and difficulties and frictions, but there were certainly people you loved. You, you may have loved the teacher because he was like the, the father of the group. And hopefully he was a good father, too. And sometimes we, we speak in uh, Soto Zen that uh, Dogen was the father of Zen, and Kazan, who was another male monk, was the mother, because a little bit more of a, a warm grandmotherly figure was Kazan. 
So uh, in the in the Zen lineage, I talk about my Dharma grandfather, Nishijima Roshi. My teacher was my Dharma father. You see, it's very much a, a family structure. So there was love. Nothing wrong with love. Buddhists are not against love. Love, man. Love makes the world go round. Love is a. You quote me on this. Love. I this. Write this down. Love is a many splendored thing. <laughs> I knew that was going to come at some point. But but again, we have the whole question of which kind of love are we talking about? Because there's the love, as I said, of family. There's the romantic love, and these are very different. I, I assume that in the past, in Zen monasteries, you didn't have male and female monks together in the same monastery. No, they, I, I, I'm sure it happened, but of course it was uh, uh, dissuaded. It was a violation of the rules. Right. The the they had separate living quarters as they should, but uh, you probably you probably had, you know, homosexual relationships, sure, and and uh, the Japanese, I have to hand it to them, kind of uh, don't talk. Uh, what what is the expression? And it can be criticized these days. Is they just didn't see it. Mm. They 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 knew it was there, and it was kind of tolerated as long as it did not become too obvious. Unfortunately, it could not be out in the open. Right. But sex isn't necessarily love. That's correct. But I, I believe that there was love that may or may not have had sex. You can have uh, love for someone. I mean, uh, as uh, someone you truly are romantically involved in or platonic love without sex being involved at all. As I said, the, I'm, I'm listening to the story of the nuns at Mother Teresa's group, and that happens sometimes. So why... Do we not hear about love in any of the Zen koans, at least the ones that I've read? Well, there are a, a couple I could I could mention, um, but uh, that type of attaching emotion of family was not encouraged. It is true. If you compare it to, say, the New Testament, which is Christ's message was love, among other things. A lot of begetting. A lot of begetting going on. <laughs> <laughs> the the Zen message seems to be very, very strict and, and really the flip side of that. Well, I, I would say actually it was quite liberal compared to earlier Buddhism, where any emotion was dissuaded. And it was encouraged that one cools one emotions of all kinds. But the, the, the Chinese and most especially the Japanese had a much more earthy flavor. So a little bit. Uh, to be a monk was considered nine to five, and then after five, you could go and have maybe an outside life. You might even have a woman living with you in the temple. It was not discussed very much, very openly until uh, the 19th century, but there were a lot of women in the temple who was a help, you know. Hmm. And then suddenly these little children would appear. No one knew where they came from, you know. But <laughs> It, so there was begetting going on there as well. Was a kind of an open secret, and as long as it did not become a scandal. For example, if the monk would do something untoward with someone's daughter, that would be a problem. You see, hmm. but people did not have a conception that in Japan that the monk had to be celibate as much as maybe on the continent in Asia. And a funny thing has happened now: monks marry hmm. in Japan. And uh, last poll I saw said that the parishioners, a, a huge percentage, something like 90% of parishioners think it's a good thing to have a married monk with a family, 
because it's an image of stability in the temple. It's not only that. Uh, I've always thought that unmarried priests in the West don't always understand the issues around raising children, about romantic um, problems between couples. Well, there's that old joke about the, the church, and uh, he who know play the game, make it the rules, you know. That was uh, yeah, an old course. joke. Yes. And it's caused all kinds of trouble, as you know. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. Uh, but it seems to me that when you look at, say, Protestant churches where priests can marry, um, these people are better models for their parishioners, I think, because they are, they're more in touch with the, the kind of issues the parishioners have. Yeah, but that's no easy answer either, because someone can cheat on their wife, and they can still misuse sexuality. Uh, you know, being married or having a sexual, open sexual relationships is not necessarily the answer. You still must not misuse sexuality, and that's the vow we take, not to use it uh, in a way to abuse someone, not to hurt someone, to use it in a healthy way. That's the vow we take. And, and of course, like any vow, sometimes it may get broken with someone. But the ideal is healthy love, not unhealthy relations. And so you come to the core teaching of Buddhism. Life is dukkha. Life is suffering. Yes. Rather than life is love. Well, it's, uh, there's a kind of love. We love life. We love the universe. Uh, this is true about Zen. Yes, but that's not that first noble truth. That first noble truth is about suffering. It's, and, and that's why early, when, when Westerners first discovered Buddhism and they learned these things, they were like, this is a very um, nihilistic uh, religion. Early Buddhism may have said that any kind of emotional attachment to something was the cause of suffering. But as I said, in China and, and Japan, it got to, in the Mahayana, it got to be a, a more earthy. So being in love with something is fine as long as you're not clinging so hard that it, it, it's literally strangled. So, for example, I, I've had many people in our sangha, and I have too. We've lost someone we love. I, I, I remember my, my Zen teacher in Japan, my first one, Azuma Roshi, his wife died. And he had been lecturing us on something, a sutra about the life is a dream and death is not real, you know, that's what we teach. And then his wife died. One day I, I saw him kind of teary-eyed, and uh, I, I said to him, you know, uh, naive, by a 24-year-old I was, I said, Roshi, you just were teaching us it's a dream. Why are you, why are you so teary-eyed? And he said, because wife died. And I said, but I'm sorry, I thought you just said life is dream. And he said, Life is dream, sometimes very painful dream. <laughs> so if you cry and you allow yourself to cry, yeah. if you feel loss at someone, but also something beyond loss, get that. We, you, you always hear me talking about the double standard we talk into. Yeah. There's loss, but something that cannot be lost. Mm. Being willing to let go, even as your heart is breaking, that is beautiful practice. That's love. Yeah, it's the memory that you hold on to, that that you hold on to forever. Right, right. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, even the memory, hold it lightly. Yes. Cherish it, embrace it in your arms, but don't hold too firm like that. Are there any koans that talk about love? There should be more, shouldn't there? There should be more. Let's make <laughs> some. Let's make some. We talk about, you know, death and transcending death. And uh, why don't we talk about, well, because the monks... We're supposed to leave their families and not have an open 
relationship. So this was something until very recently, no, they would not have discussed as openly as they should. And I think maybe you, you've put your finger on a kind of Zen mistake. There should be more koans about love. Yes, there should be. Because in Zen, there's a lot about appreciating the thusness of the world. And that, to me, is love. That feeling that something is just right. That feeling, that, that transcendent feeling that, that you can't really explain. That's love, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we love the world as imperfect as it is, because we see that it's precious, even though it's not always as we wish. But isn't that a wonderful way to love someone, too? If you, you're married, you're mm -hmm. in a relationship, you know that your partner is never going to always be as you wish. Sometimes, uh, you know, people are as they are and not as you want them to be, but they're precious as they are. And many relationships break up because people get frustrated because, oh, this person is not 100% who I want. Well, yeah. we need a lot more tolerance. Part of being in love, I think, is to be tolerant that uh, the other person is just the other person sometimes. And life is just life. The world is just the world. I'm just thinking about family back in, well, medieval Japan. It's kind of weird that we, we talk about Zen and we always go to medieval Japan, right? 13th century, where Dogen was. Right. It, it's like we're going back you know, almost a thousand years, and things were so different. Um, Dogen was an orphan, right? And so many of these other monks were orphaned or sent away from their families. And remember, these were very large families. Uh, the infant mortality was very high. So the relationship among families and people was very different. I would say it was very different in Japan in the 1970s. <laughs> uh, it truly, truly. When I first came to Japan in the 1980s and the change until now, has been very great. And I'll give you a couple of stories. I don't say that people didn't love each other. It was not as openly said and expressed, and it was not as manifest. It was the Hollywood movie that had the greatest effect on making people start holding hands. I remember I was walking down the street, and I, I, I took my fiance's hand, and her parents were behind. And my father-in-law grabbed my mother-in-law's hand, and she almost jumped three feet because they'd been married for 30 <laughs> years. It was the first time he would ever walk down the street holding her hand. Japanese people do not say, I love you, to each other. As often, I say it uh, to my wife, and, she, and the Japanese men kind of you know, wave, wave, wag their finger at me, like, oh, that's kind of uh, soft. You soft Americans, we don't say that. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't mean that people don't love each other, and, and if people uh, spend enough time together, of course, they do love each other, but it's, it was not traditionally as manifest and openly shown. So what about the love of humanity, the love of peace? Let's talk about the love of peace these days. Now, this week, with all that's going on, our Sangha has some members in Ukraine. Uh, they are, fortunately, so far uh, in relatively safe areas. Uh, one is on the coast, however. He's worried about having to flee. And I realize, first off, I love one of them because he's become family in our sangha. But also, boy, this is a failing of man's humanity to man, man's love of man. Uh, this is the part, you know, people put down the 60s all the time and the hippies. And Okay, they had one good idea that didn't turn out. Uh, and that was about, we need to love each other. Made a lot of good music. You're the expert on music. You know that boy. So, so many songs from that area. 
Gotta love everybody right now. I would say 90% of pop and rock music is about love. Yeah. All we need is love. Yeah. Okay, don't... Let's skip the singing. Okay, skip the singing. Okay. Well, all the <laughs> wonderful song about love, love, love. All right? But it didn't turn out because uh, we don't know how to love each other enough. We love in our families. We may love our friends, but... Unfortunately, we, we still don't love and empathize enough with strangers. Now, you know where I'm going to go with that. I think that uh, a little bit, this is because we're still in the jungle and it's in our genes and we someday have to grow up and get a little more love. You know, I was reading today that parents in a few years will be able to choose their children's traits before they're born. You want blonde hair? You'll get it. Uh, you want uh, someone who is going to do well in school, a little more propensity for intelligence. We have some genes uh, for that. We can toss in there. Would you like a sportsman? Good. We'll get that. How about some love? How about some love? Mm. I mean, people will choose to have more greedy children who will be successful in business, more cutthroat. I know that, you know. So why don't you choose children who are more loving to strangers? I think we can do it. We need to do this. So part of our Buddhist teaching is compassion. And that compassion is to have our hearts go out to other people, to be nonviolent, be giving and forgiving, to show loving kindness. It's vital. But is that compassion, which is one of the oldest things in Buddhism, is that the same as love? Well, there's a couple of meanings of compassion. One uh, compassion, one form of compassion in Buddhism is to teach people that there are no people. You know, the whole thing about emptiness you hear me t talking about. Sure. That there is yeah. no one to love and no one to be loved, no thing to be loved. But you know what happens? The wholeness that results is what some people might call the big L love. Mm. And now I'm, t I'm starting to sound like Timothy Leary back in the 60s. I know this. I know this. <laughs> but I mean, some people would say, you know, their idea of God, the, the harmony, the wholeness of the universe. Yeah, that God is love. What uh, Einstein heard in his equations, the, the glue that holds it all together. If you want to call it a kind of love, uh, a warm embrace, shall we say, that holds all things beyond two separate people, two separate people who become one. Okay. Mm. When you when you think about it, it's you talked about we're still living in the jungle. It is kind of natural that we love our family first, and then our friends next, and then less and less as it goes out in concentric circles from us. It's just natural that our our role in a family is to help our family first. Sure. And it is important to try and have that same feeling for others who need help as well. I think in the future we need to rewire ourselves a little bit to have that feeling more. To have that feeling, I think in the future we have to develop within ourselves a little more the ability to have that feeling for strangers lately. I, I may not you know, treat uh, a stranger exactly as I would treat my own daughter in my house. But I can empathize and feel and treat a stranger as my long-lost cousin, maybe, <laughs> or mm. an old friend, you know, like that. We could feel more compassion. If that was to happen, for example, right now, if all the invaders felt that kind of compassion for the people they're invading right now in Ukraine, boy, it would be hard for them to pick up a gun and shoot, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, when you see on the news where there's a story about a child who was killed or an old grandmother trying to get across the border. These are the things that people 
can resonate with the most rather than just, you know, normal people, middle-aged, healthy, whatever. And I think it's the, the weakness and the dependence of those people that can make us feel more compassion than just everyone. So that's why we see this on the news, because it is it does pull the heartstrings. The child reminds us of our own children or brothers and sisters. The, the grandmother reminds us of our own grandmother. Of course. Yeah. And I think that's important. And we, we need to develop this a little more. That's one of the reasons we picked love today as a theme, because of everything that's going on in the world. We, we truly, in a time of uh, hate like this, we need to pull together. And the, one of the glues that pulls the human race together is love. One of the problems in war, and I would say particularly this type of war, is that many, if not most of the people fighting don't even want to be fighting right? I've seen on TV, many of these soldiers are just young boys, and some of them, they get captured, and they're crying, and the Ukrainian people are letting them call home to tell their parents where they are. And they they are not the ones who are angry. It's the leaders who are forcing them to do this. Now, yes, in war, there are always people who commit great violence of their own volition. But in many cases, it comes from the top, and the people at the bottom aren't necessarily that, that violent or angry. Well, you can also have uh, throughout uh, a, a country at war, love of country become nationalism. Uh, right now, we're seeing a love of country on the Ukrainian people who are defending their country. And, and we kind of support it because we, we think that's a kind of positive thing, that they're defending their home. I, I said that even in the Zen monastery, you know, every monk had his own tatami mat, his own place to sleep. Mm. And you did not go and invade another person's place to sleep, even in the <laughs> monastery. Everyone shared, right? Yeah. Well, there's some fairness here of saying that this was their country and they have their love of country. But, for example, in, in Japan, you had a certain nationalism of the kamikaze that, that became a, such a passionate love of the emperor and of the, of the nation that maybe it went in a, a bad direction. So, again, there are many kinds of love. You have to love the right things. Don't love, don't love money. Don't love drugs. <laughs> right? Love good things. Love spinach. Broccoli. No. Spinach <laughs> isn't good. I used Broccoli's to, okay. I developed a... You can develop a love. I used to not like spinach. I've developed a love of spinach. Many things. You can learn to love many things you don't. Well, I'll tell you what I don't love, and that's Brussels sprouts. And there's a whole field of Brussels sprouts right across the road from me. And it's just one food that I can't eat. I would have agreed with you a few years ago. Ah, you've become a Brussels sprout lover. Yes, you know, I, you come to Japan. There are many things I, I will introduce you to that you can develop a love for. Fermented soybeans. I like that. Yeah. Oh, you like it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I do. All right. Well, this, you, you come here and visit me, and uh, I'm living in the fermented soybean capital of Japan. So. Okay, well, what's the message that we can send to people other than saying everyone should love everyone? Is it that simple? Well, I'm not going to quote an old corny song from the 60s, as, as tempting as I am. But I'm going to say that uh, with all the chaos and uh, the ugliness that we're seeing these days, uh, please, everybody, do something to uh, bring a little uh, love into the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.